hello and welcome to the show today. You know, students are facing so many issues that they have to think through, that they have to work through, and there are different messages being sent through culture, through entertainment, through the church. And our goal today is to have a conversation on some of the hot topics that students are facing to get them to think well, to think biblically about this and actually go make a positive difference, not just have ideas, but to actually start to live out these ideas and effect a positive change here in today's culture. My name is Ryan Pauly, the president of Think Well, here to help you think well about these issues, to engage the culture well. And joining me today is a good friend, a professor, a mentor of mine, Dr. Sean McDowell. Sean, thanks for coming on. Ryan, you're doing a great job, buddy. It's my treat. I appreciate it. Yeah, thank you. I mean, this is so good. I, I learned everything I know from you. And so <laughs> you can you, you can pat yourself on the back for everything that's happening. No, but uh, this is the fourth time that Sean has joined me on the show over the years. One of the very first people that I ever interviewed. But today we are discussing his newest book that was just released January, not January. That's we're in July, July 5th, A Rebel's Manifesto, Choosing Truth, Real Justice and Love Amid the Noise of Today's Culture or Today's World. So if you don't know Sean, he he is a PhD professor at Talbot School of Theology, Biola University, uh, teaching apologetics there. He also has very active on social media, growing, quickly growing YouTube channel with a lot of good conversations. So he's doing a lot of work in this area. So again, Sean, thanks for joining. And let's just start here, kind of this book, um, A Rebel's Manifesto. Some people may be surprised by the title. I think if I heard you correctly, this is kind of a redo of a recent, uh, an older book that you wrote, uh, Ethics. Kind of tell us a little bit about this book and the purpose for you writing it. Yeah, thanks for asking. Uh, it is an update to the very first student book I wrote called Ethics in 2006, which means I wrote it in 2005. <laughs> right. Now, that was a book for students. There was very little apologetic worldview uh, resources at all, and that was pre-social media. So that book did pretty well, and it basically was like, let's talk about the thorniest ethical issues of the day. So at that day, it was like war, homosexuality, abortion, divorce, these kind of topics. And then over time, I was like, wait a minute, it's time to update this book. And I just started to realize, number one, social media has changed everything. Right. And second, there's so many more pressing issues. But third, those chapters were long. And I'm like, students are going to much more appreciate three to four page kind of packed, concise chapters. But I go in, I added issues like immigration, gun control, race, transgender, so it's really a book for students to ask the question, how do I think Christianly about the toughest issues of our day? Now, the title you mentioned, I love that you said it might surprise some people, because probably if you ask most people, you know, what words come to your mind if they happen to be familiar with me, with Sean McDowell? And probably Rebel would be about towards the bottom of the list. And what I'm trying to do in this is flip what we think about a rebel. So if you look at the history of rock music, Go back to the 1950s. There was some rock music that was rebelling against racial injustice of its day. In the 60s, it's more of a rebellion against traditional values. In the 70s, there's some rock music rebelling against war. 80s, punk rock, 90s, etc. Rock and roll in the dress, in the sound, in the words, represented kind of rebelling against something. So I started thinking today, rock and roll has kind of faded in that role that it plays culturally that it did in the past. What does it mean to be a rebel today now that not only rock stars, but everybody has the ability to communicate to the world? Everybody's shouting, everybody's canceling, everybody's demonizing. 
it's actually the rebel who says, I'm going to understand you first. I'm going to be gracious. I'm going to build bridges instead of walls. I'm actually going to try to love the way Jesus did, which is standing on truth, but also being gracious towards people. So I'm trying to encourage a generation of young people to be rebels, but rebels of a very different kind. Yeah. I think that's good. Now, a quick uh, message came in in the live chat that your sound is a little bit maybe off, kind of a little echoey, or it sounds like a tin can. Um, I don't know if you have uh, uh, which microphone you have selected, but uh, if there's something to do there. Um, now, yeah, and I think that's important to kind of think through. And, you know, it's interesting thinking that first book came out while I was still in high school. Um, and so a lot has definitely changed over the years. Uh, you mentioned some of the issues that are different now um, and things that you've added. I'm kind of curious if there's other things that like other kind of big differences that you've noticed as, as changes, not just changes that have uh, uh, topics that are different, but are there other changes that you've noticed different over the years that we have to be aware of and reconcile today? Well, I think social media has changed everything, literally everything. It's changed things like identity now the way we look at who we are is very different than we did in the past so one of the things i do in this book is i try to help young people understand how social media has affected them so it affects how we think about truth for example now that there's an endless array of information at our fingertips it affects the way we process truth because there's always somebody smart who has a different perspective It makes us wonder if we can know anything with confidence. It affects us emotionally. I had a a girl, and I still teach high school part-time, as you know, at a Christian school. And I asked him, I said, Journal, why do you think we keep ourselves so busy and use social media every waking spare moment? And she said, I do so just to avoid the pain that's in my heart, to distract myself. Right. So social media doesn't cause that, but it can become the means by which it it exacerbates loneliness because we distract ourselves rather than dealing with the root issue. It also shapes us spiritually because social media is all about presenting yourself to the world, my wonderful life. And it's about (laughs) me, me, me. Or the gospel is about dying to the self and loving others. So I'm not against social media. I'm just not sure many people, not just young people have thought through how social media actually affects us. It affects right. the way we think about relationships. I had a young man tell me the other day, talking about his best friend, and the more I probed him, I was like, have you ever met your best friend? He goes, no, we interact through video games. And I thought, wow. Interesting. You can have a best friend you've never met in the flesh. So again, I'm not against social media. I'm on TikTok, Instagram, (laughs) YouTube channel. I use all these, but we have to be incredibly discerning about how it affects us. So all of these issues, immigration, gun control, et cetera, are shaped by social media. Now we can talk about those different issues and how the issues have changed, but that's the biggest difference, I think, in where this generation is at from when I wrote the book before. Yeah. And I'm curious if, uh, you know, when I give my talk on uh, redeeming entertainment culture, which I've given a few times over the summer at different places, uh, one of the the sections I talk about it has how the amusement culture has destroyed our contentment. And and I play the song by 21 Pilots. And I don't know if you know that song, Car Radio by 21 Pilots. Uh, but uh, but the, the premise is, is that his radio gets stolen. And when he drives in his car, it's all silent. And he talks about how the, mm. the quiet is violent. 
um, of how he wow. goes, oh my goodness, you know, stop thinking. I liked it better when my car had sound. And so I would encourage you, Sean, you know, if you haven't heard that song, go check it out because it, it really is, uh, I think, a real. And, and most of the students know this song. A lot of them do. Uh, but I have them listen to it and process the words. And then I pull up lyrics from the song on the screen afterwards and say, what do you notice here? Is that true? Do you use technology? Do you use your headphones to distract you? And most of them will say, yeah. I don't want to have to interact with people between classes. I don't want to have to uh, think about those difficult things in life. And so I'm going to use video games or music or whatever to distract me. And, and so what you're saying here is is so true. And so this is one of kind of the, the this is like the first issue that you that you address after kind of talking about, you know, the, the challenge and what it looks like. And you start to get into part two of the book, which is cultural issues. Uh, the first one you address there is social media. So maybe before we jump on and talk about a few other things, since this one came up, um, what what are some things like some practical steps? So, you know, we're talking about how it can affect us. What are some practical changes? What are some practical things that people can do to use social media well? Well, the first thing is just to be aware of this. When we understand that social media is affecting us, it takes some of the power out of it to shape us. That's number one. That's why I wrote that chapter first. If students would just, if all of us, again, not just students, would just realize <laughs> that uh, while technology might be morally neutral when it comes to social media, it's not worldview neutral. Right. So this is why Paul says in Romans 12 too, don't be conformed to this world. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Notice conformed is past tense. Our natural state is to be conformed to the ideas around us if we're not actively being transformed by thinking. So step number one is be aware of this. It's shaping us hands right. down. Yep. Step number two is just limit at times the amount of social media. So have spaces and times where you turn social media off, whether that's in the morning for a certain time, we have our kids turn in our phones at night and turn them off. Uh, whether it's at the dinner table, have space from social media. And that's like the song you mentioned. That's where things really begin to, uh, let's just say we're aware of how much it's affecting us when we step away from it. Third thing is follow people who will encourage you and be positive on social media. My whole goal on social media, I do some funny, I've done some Thor videos, some fun basketball ones, just because I enjoy it and it's fun. But my whole goal, I know it's yours, is to answer tough questions, to give quotes that are encouraging, scriptural ideas, that when somebody's on TikTok or on Instagram, they follow Christians that just remind them of the positive. So follow hmm. Christians. My last advice is think before you post anything. Right. Pause. I can't tell you how many times I've had to delete tweets, delete comments. I post it and then I think, God, that was not very generous. That was snarky and right. that's not going to help. So I've learned to just stop and think and ask, okay, how will that be received? What's my goal here? Is it just to win an argument or is it to win the person and represent Christ? Give it some time. So those are a few things I found are just good strategies in engaging social media. Yeah, I think that's helpful. Now, Sean, I have to ask you, you, you talked about uh, the basketball video. Did you make that final shot or was your son Scotty sitting off camera and he made the shot? That was a false dichotomy. So I'm just going to leave it there. <laughs> so it was a different video. <laughs> I didn't, I just, all I'm saying is I'm splitting the horns in the dilemma. That was a false dichotomy. It's not either or. 
Uh, all right. Yeah, that's good. Okay. So one other thing here uh, that I think is so important is you, you talked about how screens affect us spiritually and emotionally and how it affects our view of truth and kind of what we can do and think about what we're posting. Um, but you also in your book have a short section on how screens affect our identities. How are students' identities being shaped by screens? Well, screens are all about, and again, I'm not, I'm not against screens, but you look at Instagram, right. you look at TikTok. It's all about presenting a certain view of yourself to the world. And it's basically that my life is awesome. I have cool friends. I look beautiful. I'm having fun. Now, those things in themselves on vacation, doing those are not false, right? I was just on vacation and posted a video. But if that's all we present, we are presenting a minimal, ultimately, just, I don't know if I'd say false, but a, a parroted view of reality that's hmm. not really who we are. Right. So when I look at other people, they're, even those vulnerable posts that people do are really curated to make people think, hey, I'm real and I'm authentic and I, everything's not fake in my life. Everything posted, it's like in a movie, every single thing in a movie is scripted, sound, lighting, and it's the same with social media. So when we see other people's lives, it makes us think their lives are better than they actually are. Their lives are better than ours. What's the matter with me? We can't help but compare with others and then start to succumb to the need to post certain things that'll get likes. And so I start to shift who I am, the focus of my life, to get views, to get likes, to get followers, because the more views and likes and followers I have, the more perceived value I have right. in the minds of other people. So again, views and likes are not bad, but these are very, very subtle ways. I think Satan's temptation was not like, you know, I'm not worried that my kids are going to go worship Satan in a seance. <laughs> like that's too obvious. Satan is very crafty and very yeah. subtle. And that's what social media can do if we're not careful is shift our identity from our human relationships, shift our identity from who we are in Christ to the number of followers, subscribers, and the way we present ourselves to the world. And that can eat away at the soul because there's always somebody with more likes there's always yeah. somebody who's prettier, who who's more ripped, who's more like whatever, who has a better car. And that is just like chasing your tail and it can create a sense of anxiety. So it really is a powerful but a subtle lie about who we are and where our value comes from. Yeah, I think that's so good. Now, you also mentioned this idea of, you know, limiting screen time. And I think um, this is easy or maybe not easy, but this is one thing that can be done by like parents to say like, Hey, turn in your phones at a certain time or during dinner, we're not going to have this. But kind of my question to you is, 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 do you have any insights on how to actually get students to realize the importance of limiting their screen time? Cause I'll give a presentation on entertainment culture. Like I've done many times this summer. And I wanted, that's one of the points of like, you, you need to take breaks. And the moment I finish the kids pull out their phones and walk out the room. And, and so it's like, you know, we can, we can hear the importance of this, but have you found anything effective of, of getting students to actually recognize like this is an important value. I do need to limit this, not just have someone forcefully take it away from me because I don't have that self-control, if that makes sense. Well, as a guest speaker, you only have so much power, <laughs> right? right? Now we can look at our talk and make sure it's persuasive as it can be. We want to tell stories that people will remember. 
we want to be effective, persuasive speakers. But you and I have no control when we speak about what a kid is going to do when they walk out. Right. Now, that's different in my classroom. I have, even at Biola, I have no computers. This is undergrad classes. I have no laptops out. I have no phones because I want to see them face to face. And I want them, this is a three-hour class that I teach for undergrads. I don't want anything to get in the way of us seeing face to face. And I think just that moment helps build in some sense that you don't need your phone every moment. So in my bio right. class, actually Aaron's side, I've really got minimal pushback on that. Now my grad students, cause they're paying their own way. I don't have to have that kind of limitation, but with my undergrads, my high school students, I do. So with my own kids, I try to model non-technology times. We jump in the car, don't bring out your phone. Okay, you did. Give it to dad. We're just going to talk. Now, what I have to be willing to do, and I can't say I've always done this perfectly, is it's so much easier not to fight this battle because it's just exhausting, Ryan. When your kids yeah. get older, it's exhausting. My daughter was the last one to get a smartphone, at least this is what she told us, in junior high at a Christian school. And you've been to our school, CBCS. Yep. I think she was in eighth grade, and we were told many times that we're the worst parents on the planet. <laughs> Now, my daughter's amazing. She doesn't believe that. Like, I get it. You know, at that time, she was 13, <laughs> two years later. But there comes a point where you just don't want to fight the battles. You want to give in. But I have to keep reminding myself, okay, why am I fighting these battles? What's best for my daughter? And so, you know, an example, I don't know if you're talking on, is like Steve Jobs and Bill Gates with their kids. They wouldn't have technology. They kept it out of the home and kept it out of their kids because they're the ones who know how damaging it is. Right. You know, so that creates. So give the best talk you can, model for people, control what you can, and keep fighting the battles, but just make sure they're fair. So I found most young people, if I express what my boundaries are, and they're reasonable and why will actually be okay with it. Sometimes my kids have pushed back because our rules were unreasonable and we adapted them. Sometimes we don't. So we just got to control what we can, model, have reasonable boundaries, and then especially build in time without smartphones. And then kids begin to see and intentionally reflect with them on, hey, What's yeah. this like? And one last thing I do with my kids is we I was sitting at, we're on vacation with my nine-year-old who went to sit down and this kid is in line in front of us. He's probably nine or 10, had his headphones on and his iPad out. This is to go to breakfast. Walks in, sits down, had his headphones out and his iPad all the time while he was at breakfast and his parents right. let him get away with it. So I just put <laughs> out to my son as graciously as I could. I said, hey, you've seen this guy the whole time. What do you think about that? And it drew it to his attention. And then the next time he goes, he goes, dad, hey, look at that kid. He's on his iPad. And I don't want my son to be judgmental, but I want him to observe how people use technology and be thinking about this ahead of time. Yeah, no, that's so good. And I, you know, I think that's a good question. Like, hey, what do you think about that? And, and, and to kind of, again, point that out, because I think that's important. And I, it happens all the time where we go to restaurants and we see kids that are doing that. I, my wife and I were at 
brunch the other day a few months ago and and there's probably would look like about a seven-year-old sitting there watching ipad the entire time where mom was literally feeding the child because the child would not even look away to feed i, oh, I don't remember if it was a boy or a girl to feed himself so every now and then mom's like here's a bite and it's like you know just kind of observing that and going okay what are we going to do how do we create a different culture uh with, with our child and and kind of recognizing these things and trying to create that different culture and i think it's good now you mentioned in that answer two different times one of of being kind of judgmental and not wanting to be like that and another time of being called the worst parent um you know so so what does it look like then if we're calling christians to really be rebels to stand up against these issues to 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 have a different view than maybe the culture takes what does it look like to do that yet at the same time be loving to our neighbor and to not be seen as someone who is just judgmental or hateful. So what does it look like from a biblical perspective to love in the midst of standing against kind of the cultural view on these issues? So there's a couple ways to look at this. Number one is I don't want my kids to have a judgmental spirit towards others. That's different from the world calling Christians judgmental because of the views that we hold. Right. So like with my son, I want him to be thoughtful about technology, but I don't want him to look and go, those are horrible parents. That kid, like, I don't want yeah. that spirit that's holier than thou. So that's what I mean towards others. I mean, the Bible says in first Corinthians five, I believe it is Paul is like, you know, we judge one another. Don't judge outsiders. God will judge them. Now, John seven twenty four, we are to make a righteous judgment, but that's being, that's different than being judgmental. Right. So when I talk with my kids about a lot of the issues in this book, I try to get them to understand where other people are coming from. So then we can be charitable towards the views that other people hold. I might think they're wrong. I might be upset at their moral position, but I've got to at least understand where they're coming from and why. So I might say to my kid, I might say, you know, why do you, next time I'll ask them, I haven't yet. Why do you think those parents do that? And they'll probably figure out, you know, it's easier. They're tired. They're on vacation. Don't want to fight battles. Maybe I don't see the rest of their parenting. Maybe they just let this go on vacation so they don't have to fight the battles. That's not the end of the world if that's the case. So I just don't want Christians to be judgmental in our spirit, although we have to make judgments about ideas we're called to. Right. When it comes to outsiders, I just want to make sure that if I'm called a bigot or hateful or judgmental, it's not because I lack a loving spirit. And it's not because I'm dying on a secondary issue. It's because of an issue that's tied to what it means to follow Jesus. I can live with that. So I get called bigoted regularly because I speak out on issues of sexuality and especially on issues of marriage. If I just post anything, I, I can tell you the emails <laughs> and the social media comments, you are so hateful and you're killing kids. Well, I don't enjoy that. Right. But because I firmly believe that my views are rooted in what scripture teaches and what it really means to love people, I can live with that. When it's comments like, Sean, you are snarky to this guy. Sean, you're a jerk. Those give me a little bit more pause because maybe they're right, maybe they're not. But I don't want to be a jerk. I don't want to be unkind to people. I don't want to have a judgmental spirit. That's the difference. So I think it's great, Coke. I'm going to totally butcher this, but he's like, you know, Christianity is offensive enough. Let's not add anything to it through our attitudes. If people are offended, let them be offended at the gospel itself. Right. And I think that's right.
Yeah, I, I quote that all the time as well. You know, the gospel is offensive. Let's not add any offense to it. And I think at least that's my, my, I may be misquoting it too, but at least that's how I say it and how I remember it for sure. And I think that's good. Now, one last thing kind of here on kind of our attitude and having these conversations, uh, you brought up in your book, and I just thought this was so good. And I even applied it to the last uh, conversation I was having at the last camp I was at. But you talk about the, this idea of like, we are able to respond better when we truly understand what God has done for us. And you use the example of the unforgiving servant, right? And so, you know, for those listening, right, we remember the story of the parable that Jesus teaches where the king forgives a servant of this just massive debt. He goes off, finds a servant that owes him a much, much smaller amount of money. That guy can't pay. And instead of forgiving him, he throws him in jail. Right. And when the king hears of this kind of brings that back servant back and goes, I forgave you of so much. You know, how could you not show that same forgiveness back? And you say here in your book, um, and of course, I just skipped the page or, or I just closed the page on myself. Uh, but you say here, um, the implication of the parable is when someone is transformed by God's mercy, they will extend that mercy to others. Therefore, a failure to grant mercy to others reveals we don't truly grasp the depth of God's mercy to us. Can you unpack that a little bit there on, on how we can better approach these conversations? So I was invited to speak at a good-sized Christian school, prepare to talk specially for them. And maybe a day or two before, shortly before, the chaplain contacted me and goes, Sean, I'm so sorry. We've got to cancel. And my answer, Ryan, was, he said, you know, we accidentally booked two speakers for the same time. And I instantly said, you know what? I get it. I understand this happens. Thanks for inviting me. Now, why was I so gracious? It's not because I'm so awesome and I'm always that gracious. It's because shortly before that, I booked myself the same two days in different states. <laughs> and so I had to go to one of them and be like, I am such an idiot with my tail between my legs. I apologize 50 times. And so because I had been humbled by my mistake, when someone else came to me with the same mistake, I just had a little bit of grace because I felt for them. Now, that's only a speaking thing. and That's not a big deal. But I think it captures the idea that when we have been humbled, you know, humiliated, lowered, we recognize our brokenness, recognize our own failures, big and small. We're just more likely to extend that grace to other people. And so we Christians get the rap of being judgmental. And frankly, many times we deserve it. I think a lot of that is some of the stuff Philip Yancey has written on so brilliantly that we don't really understand grace. We think grace is for other people. But we don't understand how we are miserable sinners and our every life and breath we owe to our creator. When we just keep that in mind, I think for the most part, we end up being a lot more gracious with others. So I want to start the book by telling people before we get to these issues, talk about immigration. Have you experienced your own need for God, your brokenness? Well, spiritually, when we feel like we are wanderers, well, maybe that's somewhat like somebody who's an immigrant might feel. But physically, well, regardless of your position on the border and the wall and all that stuff, that's not unimportant. If we understand our own spiritual wandering, maybe we'd have some compassion for people who are physically wandering and homeless. Maybe. You can apply that to different issues. Bottom line is we would do well as Christians to focus on what makes Christianity different, which is God's grace, 
and we can do this, Ryan, without compromising truth. Yeah, that's the key. It can be done. Jesus was full of grace and truth. Yeah. So um, I want to jump in now, kind of, I think this is really important, kind of setting that stage of what it looks like and how we are being shaped by our culture and kind of now jumping into some of these issues and, and looking at what, how can we think well about them? How can we think biblically? And then what are some practical things that we can do? So the fact that you just brought up immigration as an example, let's jump to that chapter. Um, but more than just kind of understanding ourselves and our position and helping us better understand them, what does scripture have to speak into this topic of immigration? How does the Bible inform our, uh, our understanding of it? So the Bible broadly speaks about immigration in the sense that Abraham was a kind of immigrant. The Israelites were immigrating. The Bible is about movement and a people group moving all over the place. I never really noticed how much the Bible has people coming and going and moving until I saw it through this lens. So that gave me a lot of compassion for this. But second, we also got to realize questions of Abraham moving and being called to another area is not the same overlap as our modern states with the contemporary immigration issue. So we make a mistake by saying, well, the Bible says nothing to this. We also make a mistake by taking a verse out of the Old Testament that talks about how to treat a wanderer and say, see, this should inform our immigration policy. I want to say, okay, Let's take a step back. I'm not sure it maps over that black and white. So what I'm trying to do in this chapter, it's a short chapter, is say that law is important. We have to have borders for safety, for identity. There's a case to be made for law and order. But we as Christians, whether you like it or not, have people that are both legal and not legal immigrants amidst us. Are we going to show love to them? And what does that kind of love look like? So the purpose of this chapter is to try to tell Christians that that politics matters. We can't avoid politics. Who we vote for has implications, but we also have a duty to love and care for people around us. So since this is a book for students, I'm just asking students to say, I wonder how many in your neighborhoods, on your sports teams, in your schools, are immigrants. And if they're kids, they probably weren't brought here by their choice at all. Right. What would it look like for you to just love that person who's an immigrant? Yeah. All of us, including young people, can do that. Yeah, and I think that's so important, you know, and I, I interviewed uh, Daryl Bach uh, a couple weeks ago uh, on his book, Cultural Intelligence. I know you had him on the Think Biblically uh, show a mm-hmm. while back in the same book, but I love kind of his perspective. And he used immigration as the example for this as well of like there are there's kind of the the the, the issues in which we, we don't have very much common ground. Right. Where it's just fundamentally a different worldview issue where there's going to be big disagreement and there's not going to be that common ground. Uh, and versus then there's the issues, which says kind of the third level issue where there are two different kind of biblical values that are in conflict and, and our culture wants us to pick one or the other. And so he talked about an immigration, like there's a value in following the law and there's a value in the government being able to set the laws on who they want to come in and who they don't want to come in. And there's an importance to that. But then there's also the biblical value of caring for the immigrant and caring for the sojourner and caring for people yep. and loving people. And so our culture wants us to pick between the two of, do you follow, do we just enforce laws and, and not care? Or do we love people and ignore laws? And it's like, no, we have to figure out how to reconcile these two issues well. So uh, I think that's good. And kind of what you're 
you're saying there and, and what does it look like to come alongside and love these people at the same time laws are important so um uh you mentioned here kind of a, di a different list of, of things and i always know when when i point things out in a book is like all right you mentioned six things in your book you know rephrase those for us sometimes authors are like wait what are the six things <laughs> no but i think um you know uh w you mentioned some ideas of scott ray right and so maybe i'll just kind of refresh your memory here really quick of some guidelines yep. for immigration policies so number one control borders and set limits on immigration that's important mm -hmm. number two meeting immediate needs for desperate refugees number three ensuring that immigrants are not dangerous to the community number four ensure that public services don't limit resources for citizens Five, offer a fair process for citizenship for all who seek to enter the, the country. And number six, keep immediate families together whenever possible. And so here are kind of six mm -hmm. things that you kind of offer there from Scott Ray, oh, a colleague there at Talbot with you uh, that are important. And so um, kind of with those six things in mind, kind of anything else here on this kind of issue on, on encouragement to people on what can Christians do? I know you mentioned loving people well that are around you. Kind of what else can we do to kind of have better conversations on this? Well, I guess I would say realize a couple of things. In some ways in this book, it's less, here's a practical plan to fix immigration. Right. That's not this book. It's helping frame the broader issue, bringing in Christian principles, and helping Christians see how they can take biblical ideas, wrestle with modern ideas of immigration, and better love their neighbors. That's the goal of this. So when you said earlier, there's the side that's like on law and there's the side that's on love. Well, very simplistically put, you might say the conservative Republican side would be more about law and right. the liberal Democrat side would be more about love or compassion. And I know that's a stereotype, but that's probably generally the case. Well, as Christians, you said, we're about value both. So what happens is if you're a Democrat, you look to Republicans and say you don't love if you're Republican, you look at Democrats and say, you don't even care about the law. Well, that's probably not very charitable. I what, what is happening is people are taking different principles, weighing them differently as they look at something like immigration. Right. So first off, I'm going to encourage Christians, if you're one political party, have you ever really considered what the other political party holds and why? Now, at the end of the day, you might still think they're wrong. But if you haven't really taken the time to understand their arguments, I would say maybe you haven't actually loved your neighbor and you won't have compassion for them. And if they're wrong, then your convictions will be even deeper and you'll be able to communicate more effectively because the other person will feel like you understand their views. So I'm not taking a relativist view in this saying all political views are equal, left right. and the right, let's sing kumbaya, that's not my point. I'm going a little deeper and saying, what's at stake? How can we be charitable with one another? And frankly, ideas on this have consequences, whether people allowed in or not. Like that has consequences. So it's not unimportant. But I'm saying, let's slow down. Let's think about this. Most of us let other people do the thinking for us because Jesus said we're sheep, right? We naturally do that. I think we owe it to think a little bit more deeply and personally about this. And yeah. frankly, last thing in immigration, there's some issues that I think scripture's black and white on. For example, the issue of marriage. Scripture's clear, one man, one woman, one flesh, one lifetime. Immigration is not black and white, at least in terms of the political parties as a whole, because we should have a border and we should love people. 
there are Christians who are conservative, broadly speaking, who are more what you might say middle ground or to the left and those to the right. So this isn't a question of orthodoxy. It's a question of policy and wisdom and seeing what actually works. And that is where we have to go deeper than than often the little slogans that we see on social media that frequently get shared. And it's like there's more to this that we have to think well about. Now, uh, the chapter right before this, another uh, I mean, you you hit all the issues, uh, the big ones, guns and guns and violence. Mm. And so here is another big controversial conversation with everything happening. The moment there's a mass shooting in our culture, you you quickly get different sides that rise up and saying we need gun control and others saying gun control is not going to fix everything. It's about the heart. So what are you trying to offer here to students in your chapter on guns and violence? This was a harder chapter for me to write because I could probably count on one, maybe both hands, the number of times I've shot a gun in my life. I'm not pretending to be a gun owner. And I frankly don't, (laughs) I just don't care about the issue as much as other issues. Like I'm not as gravitated towards it as others, but that's not to say I don't understand how vital and important this issue is today. Yeah. So one of the points that I want to draw out is, of course, the Bible doesn't talk about guns, right? This is a larger <laughs> question about how Christians engage with violence. And there is a history within the church of pacifism. And there's also, you know, the stronger view that says we can use force within the church, uh, Romans 13, 1 Peter, under certain conditions. So this has been debated Uh, for a long time within the church. This is not novel, but the particulars apply differently to gun control. One of the things I want to get people to realize is as a whole, again, as a whole, there's exceptions. People on all sides of this debate want to reduce gun violence. Yeah, I don't know anybody who's a Christian, at least, who's like, you know what? I want guns so we can (laughs) shoot and kill people. Like that's almost stupid to say. They think the more armed the populace is, the better chance we have of stopping somebody who misuses a gun. That's what they think. On the other side, they think, no, the more guns there are, the more likelihood there may be violence. We need more stricter laws. Then it'll reduce unless gun violence. Both want the same end as a whole, although they might differ over the Second Amendment and our right to have a gun. I get that. We both want to reduce violence. So when I approach it that way, I can at least have charity for somebody on the other side. You'll often hear people on the left saying, those on the right don't care about life. They're hypocrites for being pro-life and then supporting guns. I'm like, that is such a stereotype that's uncharitable that might work politically, but no Christian should make an argument that on either side, right? Or to say to the left side, you just want to steal our guns and you're going to control us government. I'm like, that is not true for the most part either. (laughs) That's not very charitable. So let's understand why people are making the arguments that they make. And then this says, what do the facts actually show? Let's go to the states where they have the greatest gun control. Let's go to the states where they have certain laws and effectively see what works so we can balance the Second Amendment, right? Obviously, there's some limit on weapons people can have. I don't know anyone who thinks that people should be able to own tanks, right? I mean, (laughs) we've got to have some reasonable limits, right? but we also need to have some freedom. And the Christian just should say, what policy really works 
without being extreme. Now that brings it back to what the data actually shows. But I found a lot of Christians just jump on what their friends say, jump on what's popular, whatever the left or the right believes rather than following the data. So as a Christian, I have no problem pushing against the NRA if I think I disagree with them. Now they're powerful and they, maybe they would want to come after me if I said that, but whatever, we should be concerned with reducing gun violence and saving lives, but also preserving the right for people to protect themselves and even use some guns for sports or for collection. Now, yep. exactly how you do that, that's where the debate <laughs> comes in. Yep. But I've seen a lot of people put forward some very practical ideas to help with guns. And sometimes because we make it such a political issue, we're not even willing to make progress on both yep. sides, which I think is really unfortunate. Yeah. And I like what you say here, kind of the, the practical steps, two of the practical steps that you offer here mm. in this section is one, avoid naive laws or mandates that overlook humanity's capacity for evil. And then number Amen. three, the third one is, you know, pursue effective laws that will actually help to restrain humanity's capacity for evil. Right. So that is like clearly like what we should recognize is that we have a capacity for evil. Um, and at the same time, like how do we create laws that restrain that and, and actually are effective laws at helping with that. And those are some practical steps. And again, what that looks like, there's some debate there, uh, but at least we sure. can agree on that. Now, you also mentioned some bad arguments, and, and I wanted to bring one of these up at least. Uh, you, you say guns don't kill people. Sorry, guns. Yeah, du guns don't kill people. People do. So what about this idea? Yeah, it's not the gun's fault. It's it's the evil person. And, and so what do we do there with this argument? Why do you think this is bad? Well, I think it's a false dilemma because people kill people using guns. <laughs> so... <laughs> They're right. The guns don't have a conscious choice to kill anybody. They are a tool. But when it's all said and done, certain tools increase the likelihood that people can kill a lot more people. Now, exactly where that line is, shotgun, pistol, AR-15, I'm not going to land that right here. But I think that's a simplistic slogan that sounds good. And I want to say, you're right. When it's all said and done, it is the human heart and human choice to kill. If somebody wants to kill and they don't have a gun, they're gonna find another way to do it. But the reality is certain guns enable a lot more mass killing and can result in the taking of more lives. So we should be cognizant of that as well. People kill people using guns. That doesn't make a gun bad. That just means we need to be wise about who can have guns how they can have guns to try to minimize that if we effectively can. Yeah, and I think we should at least be all all be able to agree on that point for sure. Now, this does come from these some of these uh, conversations that we just had come from Section 5 on ethics, where you also talk about the environment, poverty, then guns and violence, mm. immigration, and artificial intelligence. Uh, there's like 20... Six different chapters in this book. Again, short chapters, a lot of good information. If you want to pick this up, it is available everywhere. I want to jump to another section on relationships. And two here that I want to kind of touch on a little bit is, first of all, this is idea of loneliness. I think that this is very common and very popular in our culture today, especially with COVID happening. And I hear a lot of students I talk to, like, man, COVID years were, were very depressing, very lonely. At the same time, we think yeah. that we're, no, we're like more connected and we're like involved in everyone's mm -hmm. life because of social media. At the same time, like, I love it. I think it's Sherry Turkle that puts it, you know, this idea of being alone together. And so uh, what are you kind of trying to draw out in this chapter on loneliness? How can we think well about this issue? Well, this is a, a great example of a chapter I did not have in the book in 2005. Loneliness was an issue, but it has grown exponentially 
and a lot of people have put to the time that this that smartphones went over 50% of the populace had them. This is Jean Twenge in her book, iGen. You see a hockey stick increase in loneliness. And in some ways, we could say that's only been drawn to the surface and exacerbated during uh, the pandemic. So I feel like I've got to talk about loneliness, but what's the heart of loneliness? Well, the Bible makes it clear that we're made for relationships. That's what we're here for. That's our purpose. So we suffer when we're not in healthy relationships. What's the worst place to be in prison, assuming you're not being tortured, is solitary confinement. Hell is described as darkness, which is aloneness. And heaven is a city bustling with people or a banquet where there's relationships. So this generation is suffering with loneliness and we're giving them drugs and social media can be a drug. I'm not against drugs insofar as they go obviously illegal drugs, but certain drugs to help with chemical imbalances, et cetera. I don't have a problem with that in principle, but the root of the issue is relational. And so I'm calling this generation back to just say, what are you made for? What are your relationships like? And I would say shows like Stranger Things and the Avengers. Why does this generation love them so much? Because it's a group of people in relationship on a journey loving and sacrificing for one another. That's what the body of Christ is supposed to be. That's what it's meant to be. We have an even bigger, more important vision to call people to. And instead we just entertain them and give them pizza. Yeah. Yeah. Now, Sean, have you, I might've asked this to you last time you were on the show, but have you seen the show um, alone on Netflix? I have not. Okay. I would, it's, it's fascinating. Uh, my wife and I, a new season just popped up on Netflix. Pretty much they drop 10 people off in like Northern Canada all by themselves. And the person who survives the longest wins a half a million dollars, but it's, it's just absolutely telling of like the number one issue. Now, again, there's like injury that has to send them home and, and things like that. But one of the biggest issues that sends people home is just, they, they can't be alone that long and it gets to their head. The the depression sets in They just, they start talking to themselves. They go crazy. And it's like, I, I can't be away from my family. I know this money, would help in everything, but I can't be away from my family. I got to go. And then they tap out and it's like half a million dollars is not worth it to keep them there. And they talk about this issue or this season more than others. It's even at the very beginning talking about the mental struggles are even sometimes more powerful than the physical struggles of surviving in Northern Canada in the freezing cold and dealing with bears. Um, And so it's very interesting uh, kind of the experiment, so to speak of, yeah, we're going to drop you off completely alone and after weeks or months, seeing what happens to people that are not in those sort of relationships. Um, so I think that's that's so good. Now, uh, also in this section on relationships, uh, you bring up the idea, uh, obviously a big one of racial tension. And so uh, what can you kind of speak into this? Because this is, again, is a very heated, very uh, spicy debate back and forth from different sides. Uh, what are you trying to communicate to students here in this chapter? You know, what's really interesting, Ryan, when I wrote the first book, Ethics in 2005, You know what topic I did not include, amongst others, was race. It didn't cross my mind to put a chapter on race. Now, we were in a very different spot culturally at that point. But do you think any minority in America writing a book on ethics to students would leave out the topic of race? (laughs) Of course (laughs) not. When I went to write this, I had a moment I stopped. I'm like, oh my goodness, I've got to include immigration, gun control, transgender, but race, how did I miss that? Now, I kind of hesitate to use the term privilege because it's such a loaded term, but 
But I really do think that's an advantage or a privilege of being in the minority race, so to speak, that I don't see myself through the lens of race. I'm not aware of it. I don't have to navigate reality because most people are more like me. So I start off this chapter by going, gosh, my eyes have opened to this. Wish I had included it back then. I wonder what other blind spots I have. I think any Christian should just be able to see themselves and the world that way. So I talk about some of the myths that we make. Some people say we live in an absolutely colorblind society. Race is not an issue. Myth. Other people err by seeing race everywhere and reading race into subjects that are not about race. And I think they can do that for political gain. They can do it for a lot of different reasons. I think that's also a mistake. So the bottom line is the Bible doesn't talk about our identities in terms of race the way we do today. The skin color of some people is mentioned. Ethnicity is mentioned. But as far as I understand it, race, the idea that you are black or white was invented as a way to justify slavery. That was a part of where this identity of what it means to be black and white was I was invented to justify slavery. So the Bible's not going to talk about race in the exact way that we do today. But what does it talk about? It talks about not showing favoritism. It talks about loving people who are different. It talks about issues of like Jew and Gentile that's not race, but it's about differences with cultural implications. How do we love people who are different? Whether it's age, whether it's skin color, whether it's sex, that's the heart of the question about race. So biblically, I'm also trying to point out at the beginning, God cares about racial diversity in the sense that God made a world in which human beings of all different races and ethnicities would come out of it in the Mm -hmm. past. In the present, in the church, the church is made up of differences. But God also cares about diversity in the future. When we get this depiction in Revelation of people from all places and all nations come together as one. So diversity, whether race or other issues, is beautiful and built into the Christian ethic We've just got to make sure we take ideas from scripture, not from some of the cultural ideas about diversity, equity, and inclusion that I would argue don't match up with a scriptural ethic. Yeah, I think that's good because I think that there's, as with a lot of these issues, right, where it's like God clearly values diversity. And then there's like, Amen. okay, but then how do we go about achieving this? How do we recognize it? How do we value it uh, is, is, is where maybe conversations sometimes go in different places uh, in, in what we're trying to recognize here. Uh, some of the practical steps that you offer here on racial tension. You, you talk about, um, as you mentioned there, hold on a second. I just, again, switched to the wrong page, right? Building relationships uh, with people of different mm-hmm. ethnicities, rooting out racism in your own heart and being a good listener. Um, I'm just kind of curious because I know you've kind of had some of these conversations. You mentioned it briefly in the chapter of like what it looks like or, or what um, uh, I guess what it looks like being a good listener like what are we listening for um, and 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 how does that how should that listening kind of shape us so building relationships and listening are two of the most valuable things I went and spent a year after I graduated from college traveled with my father and then the second year before I went to grad school I went and I worked at a church in the inner city in LA called the Dream Center 
and it is one of the most, at least at the time, one of the most racially diverse churches I had ever been to in the inner city. And I'm from like small town mountains of San Diego. I partly want to stretch myself, but I just wanted to see the world uh, through the eyes of different people who've grown up in radically different situations. And it was really eye-opening to do a Bible study in the inner city in LA. And every time I pulled in with my Honda, not every time, the first few times these drug dealers would walk up to me trying to sell me drugs until eventually they figured out, they go, oh, hi, pastor, welcome. You know, I'm like, for me, where I grew up, I was like, that is so foreign to me. But getting out of my comfort zone, going to just serve in this ministry was really transformative to me to begin to understand and see the world how different people do. So listening is just not for somebody to make a point so I can come back at them. It's just to understand. So after the George Floyd incident, I mentioned this briefly in the book, my son and I went to somebody who he was in close relationship with. And uh, this person is, is black from the inner city and just said, hey, would you be willing to talk about how you've processed this George Floyd thing so we can understand? That's it. Took him out to lunch for an hour, and all I did is ask questions. And my son and I walked away, and we're like, wow, there's probably a few lessons he drew from this that I thought, I don't, I don't agree with that. That's not the conclusion I would draw. But my point was not to correct him. My point was not to argue with him. My point was to understand the world through how he experiences it and how he processed it. And I learned a ton by going, oh, I never would have thought of that. I didn't see something a certain way. And I think he felt cared for as well. In fact, at the end, he told me about a friend who said, hey, can you tell us how you process this incident? Uh, The George Floyd killing, not just an incident. And he said, uh, he said the moment he started to share, this guy cut him off and then started to turn it to politics and argue his view. Hmm. He said, you guys didn't do that. You just listened. That's one small positive step forward. Bottom line, Ryan, a lot of people just want to be understood. They want to be heard. M. Scott Peck said the greatest way to love somebody is to listen. So that's not easy for me. My daughter gave me a mug. And by the way, I choose to take this as a compliment. It says, I don't need Google. My father knows everything. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm like, she she didn't mean anything by it. I'm I'm a professor. I'm a communicator. It's my job to give answers. But I have learned to just be a good listener. And my whole goal is simply to understand. On racial issues, so many of my black and brown and Asian friends have just said, when I take the time to listen, or times that I haven't, they've let me know it's helpful, or in this case, not so helpful. So if every Christian would just say, I just want to listen, I want to get out of my comfort zone, understand the world as somebody else sees it, that would be a profound act of love. And again, you can do that without compromising your views on race or diversity or justice. Listening doesn't mean approval, whether you're on the left or the right. It's something all of us can do. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, it reminds me just recently I had a conversation with a guy who was a black drill sergeant in the Marines back during the Vietnam era. 
and talking about his experience uh, in the Marines, thinking like at the beginning, showing up like, oh, everybody's green. We're just a Marine. And then very quickly, the racial stuff started coming into it during that time. And now he works in inner city L.A. with students. And, you know, he first started hearing about students who were graduating high school in L.A. here in 2020 that didn't know how to read and write. And he goes, clearly, that's like an exaggeration. That's not true. And then he started realizing this is true. Uh, and kind of what is happening wow. with some of these schools. And it's just, is, again, eye-opening to go, wow, is that really happening in America where kids are 18, graduating high school and don't know how to read and write? Like something something is off here. Uh, and it's amazing kind of what you know we are able to experience and learn hearing those different perspectives. Now, if I can open one more huge can of worms in our last five minutes together, you have a whole uh, chapter here on different sexuality issues, and I would just encourage those who want to go deeper into this. Sean and I recently had a conversation on his last book that came out, Chasing Love, kind of really diving into some of the issues of sex and marriage. But specifically, you, you bring up here of this transgender ideology. And so I know this is a lot, very confusing for a lot of people. This is kind of a newer issue that's come up. This is a newer thing that's going on, and parents and, and youth leaders and don't know how to respond, and students are, are feeling conflicted because they're hearing one thing from a parent or pastor. Their friends are telling them something else. And so we have to go back to Scripture and say, what does scripture have to say? And so in our last few minutes together, what are some principles that we can draw from scripture on this new kind of thing going on in our culture of transgender ideology? So the difference between this generation and mine is we, I heard about issues of homosexuality, not so much transgender, uh, but it was an issue that was largely out there. It wasn't personal. Hmm. It is personal for this generation. They have either wrestled with same-sex attraction themselves They've wondered how they fit within this gender spectrum that's offered, or they certainly know friends in person or online. And they're told, if you don't embrace this, you're bigoted and you're hateful and you're homophobic. This is very difficult for this generation to navigate. So one of the things I want to say to this generation, first off, is that God loves LGBTQ people. That should be obvious, but we don't always communicate that well. God loves them. And regardless of your sexual orientation or your gender identity, you are made in the image of God and have dignity and value and worth. We don't treat anybody like dirt. We love people. Now, the difficulty comes in because our culture has a very different uh, approach to love than what I think scripture does. Love, culturally speaking, means to affirm however somebody identifies or believes or behaves, where a Christian worldview is to love is to have somebody's best interest at heart and to work for their objective good. That's where some of this tension comes into place. So I'll walk through just briefly scripturally that scripture says God made us essentially as sexed beings. So my skin color is secondary to who I am, believe it or not. My height is secondary to who I am. My intelligence is secondary where I live. But God made us essentially sexed beings, male and female. He also made us body and soul. We are both. And God calls us through scripture to live in congruence between our body and between our soul. And of course, that's where the tension comes in with the transgender movement that somebody could say, I am a male trapped in a female's body. And it divorces the body from the soul. That's where some of this worldview difference comes in. So I want young people to know we've got to reach out in love, build relationships with those who say they're Christian or not, who are LGBTQ, show them that you care about them. In some ways, just treat them as a friend the way you treat anybody else as a friend. 
but don't take your cues about what it means to be human, about identity, from the culture. Take it from Scripture. You are made in the image of God as body and soul, and God desires us to live in congruity between our body and soul. Now, last thing I'll say, Ryan, is one of the difficulties on this is we brought in certain stereotypes from the culture about masculinity and about femininity. So real men eat meat, they hunt, they work out and watch football. And then there's some girl who's like, I want to watch football, actually want to work out. I like meat. And in the past, she could be a tomboy and everyone's like, oh, that's fine. Now you start to wonder if a girl feels that way, if maybe she is actually a boy. Yeah. And part of what brings that damage on is the stereotypes that have pervaded our culture and in some ways pervaded the church. Yeah. So we can't lose the distinction between male and female, but let's make sure we don't bring in these harmful stereotypes that ends up in many ways just confusing kids. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that is a, a great way to kind of end. And there's so much more to talk about, though, but I, I think it's so real. And that's one of the things I discuss in my talk on gender identity is and how to navigate this is these stereotypes and that often the church does bring in. I've talked to individuals who say they went to a men's retreat and it was all about shooting guns and chopping wood and, you know, let's just drink coffee and have beards. And, and the guy's like, I, I don't like that and I don't fit in with that. And it makes them feel uncomfortable or they don't want to go. And, and so it's some of these things. It's like it's not wrong that a man likes to shoot a gun or chop wood. But I, I had a girl recently tell me i want to be a boy because i like chopping trees and it's like that that, that's the idea right there of like we're we're putting this impression out there without maybe realizing it that Mm -hmm. is confusing kids to think if i like playing in the mud and chopping down trees then i must be a boy and i think that's so huge and again one of the biggest questions that i was asked uh throughout the summer different events that i've been at is is but how do we love people how do we support homosexuals and transgender individuals. And so it's like, that's what students are really trying to wrestle with is not only what is true here, but how do we come alongside and support? Because as you mentioned, our culture gives a very different picture of that. So with that though, we are out of time. There's way more to talk about. So check it out, pick up this book. There's so much more here. There's 26 different chapters of different issues. But Sean, thank you so much for coming on and discussing some of them with me and giving a preview of what you've done uh, to my listeners and helping us think well about these issues. Thanks, Ryan. Appreciate it. All right, everybody, with that, let me finish up here. Um, There's a lot more going on this summer. I'm leaving actually tomorrow, flying out to Florida for another event and then coming back for a few weeks before heading out on another trip. So uh, more shows are coming up in the future. My one yesterday, I had major technical difficulties, so we had to record it rather than streaming live. So I will be posting that recording next week. My conversation with Mikel Del Rosario, I'm making a case for the divinity of Jesus. So you can be on the lookout for that. And again, as always, I would really love it and appreciate it if you subscribe share this with a friend or family member because I know that this is something that is so relevant and so important and we need to know how to think well about these things. So with that, have a blessed and wonderful rest of your day. Continue to think well and think deeply about God, Jesus, and Christianity because they are worth thinking about. See everybody. Have a good rest of your week. Just won't hesitate to follow